This morning we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 32 and the highlight of that lesson is Jacob wrestling with this strange character all night long. So we'll take a look at the story and what that's about and what happens right before that. A little background from the previous lessons that uh, Jacob had cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance blessing. And Esau, in his birthright. That's right, in his birthright. And, and Esau wanted to kill Jacob, so Jacob flees, thinking it's going to be for a little while, and it's over 20 years. He goes to Mesopotamia to the house of his uncle Laban, ends up marrying Laban's two daughters, Rachel and Leah, builds a large family. At this point, he has 11 sons and at least one daughter. He becomes a wealthy man, large flocks, lots of animals. And at this point in time, after over 20 years of serving his uncle, his deceitful uncle Laban, the angel Lord tells Jacob to depart from Haran and Mesopotamia and go back to his homeland where he was, where his family was. So Jacob leaves secretly with his family and his possessions, and then Laban comes after him. But God warns Laban in a dream not to say anything bad about Jacob. So that's where we left off before. That's the background for what follows Genesis chapter 32. I want to start by reading uh, the first 21 verses. Genesis chapter 32 verses 1 to 21. This is a long section on reading from the... uh, Orthodox Study Bible, which is which is based on this the Septuagint, so it may be just a little bit different than the versions that you're used to, but it's it, this should be pretty similar actually. Genesis chapter 32, verses 1 to 21. So early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his sons and daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. So Jacob went on his way and saw the hosts of God encamped. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's encampment. And he called the name of that place Encampments. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I sojourned with Laban and stayed there till now. I have oxen, donkeys, sheep, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find grace in your sight. Then the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you, and four hundred men with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people with him, and the oxen and sheep into two companies. Then Jacob said, If Esau comes to the one company and destroys it, then the other company will escape. Again, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Return to the land of your nativity and I will deal well with you. Let me be satisfied with all the righteousness and all the truth you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there the same night and took some of the things he had brought as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats, 
20 male goats, 200 sheep, and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their offspring, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, each flock by itself, and said to his servants, Go on before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these going before you? Then you shall say, Your servant Jacob's. These things are a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the first, the second, and the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he said to himself, I will appease him with a present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on before him, but he himself lodged that night in the encampment. So, review the elements of the story what we just read. So Laban departs, his father-in-law returns home, and Jacob continues on to a place where he sees the hosts of God encamped. It sounds like it's a, a camp out of angels or something like that. Then Jacob sends his messengers ahead to tell Esau that he's returning and he's hoping for a gracious reception. The messengers return to Jacob and they say that Esau is on his way to meet Jacob. So they said, your brother Jacob's coming. So he, he decides that he's going to go meet him and he's coming. That's the good news. The bad news, he's coming with 400 men with him. So I think he's think, uh, Jacob's thinking this is probably not to throw a big party for me here right. after what's happened. So Jacob is afraid of Esau's approaching army. He divides his group into two companies, uh, so hopefully at least one of them will survive the attack that he's expecting. Then he prays to God, and he sends out these staggered groups of gifts, one after another after another, these waves of gifts to his brother, hoping that uh, his brother's love language is perhaps gifts. <laughs> so he's going he's gonna to make some impression there. We'll see, we'll see how that works. I want to take a look at two things in, in the story here. One is, well, I want to take a look at what are some possible lessons that we can learn from, from Jacob, from the story of Jacob and what's happened so far. One lesson is, as soon as one problem goes away, that was his uncle Laban, then another one comes which is even bigger than the problem that you, you, you were relieved from. And that's the way life happens sometimes. You, you, you get rid of one problem and then, oops, you got a bigger one ahead of you. Uh, uh, Laban wanted to cheat him. Esau wanted to kill him. So uh, that happens. And then even a great hero of faith like Jacob, who'd seen God working powerfully in his life to bless him, can be absolutely terrified. He's scared to death. Another thing that, that I notice here is that Jacob is creative in the face of a challenge. He splits his group in two. So the old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So he, he splits his big family in two. And then he gives gift to his brother. And I think of the proverb, there's actually a proverb that talks about this. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 14 says, a gift 
given in secret, pacifies anger and a bribe behind the back, strong wrath. So he's, he's putting this into practice. This is coming from the wisdom. Wisdom of the ages, most of the Proverbs coming from Solomon. So, so he, he's thinking that I'm going to pacify my brother's anger by giving him gift after gift after gift. So there's, he, he's using creativity and wisdom in, in handling this problem. And then he turns to God in prayer. And I think that his prayer is very instructive for me personally, and I think it holds some good lessons for us. I think it's great as we look at the great people of men and women of faith in the, throughout the scriptures to take a look at their prayer lives. This is what's, what's sustaining them. It reveals a lot about their relationship with God and the way that they pray. When we pray, great place to start is Jesus says, when you pray, say, to pray the Lord's Prayer. But then there are, there are many occasions when we can pray, and there are many lessons to learn from, from prayers like this one here. He starts off by, by praying to God. He reminds him that he's the father of, he says, Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. And then he just, just to qualify, to make sure he's, he's talking to the, 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 the right God here, he says, And by the way, the Lord who said to me, return to the land of your nativity and I'll deal well with you. That God right there, that's the one I want to talk to. You know, The one who told me that I needed to go on this journey after 20 years. You're the one who sent me there and you're the one who said you were going to take care of me. That God, that's the one I'm praying to right now. That's in verse 9. Then Jacob acknowledges that God had taken care of him thus far. He, he reminds God, he says, look, I crossed over this Jordan with just my staff. So when he left his homeland, he had nothing but the staff in his hand, basically. And now I've become two companies. So now he's become an incredibly wealthy man with a big family. Since I left with nothing and I came back with all these things. See, so he, he, he acknowledges that the Lord had given him everything he, he had. That he, he went from poverty to tremendous wealth. And that's all because of God. Now think about this. This is an important lesson later on. When the Israelites are in the wilderness, Moses warned the Israelites that although they left Egypt with very little and they're living in the wilderness, that they're about to go into a land that flows with milk and honey. And there they would become very wealthy. And Moses warned them in Deuteronomy 8 that there was a danger that when they became wealthy, they would forget God. And see, Jacob didn't do that. But this is it's a passage in Deuteronomy I think about often in connection with this. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verses 6 to 18. This could easily pass our notice, but I think it's a very important lesson. To remember God in wealth. There's, there's a danger, I think in Proverbs it says that uh, there's a danger, uh, I don't want to be either too too poor or too rich, and I don't know how many people pray, God please don't give me too much too much wealth. 
I don't want to be so rich that I will forget you. There's a tendency when people are wealthy and prosperous to forget God and just to be become self-reliant. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading in verse 6. Moses is, is warning the, the, the Israelites about concerns that he has before he dies. This is at the end of their 40 years in the wilderness. He says, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good and great land where torrents of waters and springs of bottomless steps flow through the plains and through the mountains. A land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. The land where you will not eat your bread in poverty, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and from whose hills you can dig copper. Thus you shall eat and be full, and bless the Lord your God for the good land he gave you. Verse 11, Watch yourselves, that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, judgments, and ordinances I have commanded you today, lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your cattle and sheep multiply, and your silver and gold are multiplied, and all you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage, who led you through the great and fearful desert with its biting serpent and scorpion and thirst, where there was no water, who brought you spring of water for you out of the sharpest, sharp-edged rock, who fed you in the desert with manna, your fathers did not know that he might deal harshly with you and that he might test you to do good in the end of your days. Then do not say in your heart, My strength and the might of my hands gained me this great power. Then you shall remember the Lord your God, for he it is who gives you strength that you may gain power and he may establish his covenant. The Lord swore to your fathers as it is this day. Thus it shall be if you forget the Lord your God and follow after different gods and worship and serve them. I testify against you that you shall surely perish. So this is, this is the great fear as people become wealthy, as they have more possessions, they have nice homes, they have gold and silver, that they're going to turn and forget God and they're going to think that they did it themselves. That God gave them the ability to do this. He gave them the ability to produce wealth. He gave them the, the opportunities that they had. And so uh, Jacob didn't forget that. He remembered, I, was, I came out here with nothing and you took care of me, you protected me, and you gave me everything I have. Now he worked extremely hard for it, but he also saw that God had protected him and had, had uh, given him what he had. Uh, so, lesson for us to be grateful and to remember God and to remember all the things that God has given us. Another thing I appreciate learning about Jacob's prayer here is that he's brutally honest with God. He's really direct and blunt and honest. There's no flowery, super spiritual language here. He admits that he's afraid of Esau, his brother, and he asks for God's protection. So even though God's taking care of him all the way along, he's got a new challenge and he's frightened. He's terrified of his brother. He says, deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. 
lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. So he's, he's, he's being really honest. He's afraid. And then he closes by reminding God one more time of the promises that he had made to him. He says, for you said... I will surely treat you well and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, he has here a dozen children at least, but you can count to 12. But God had promised him. The promise had gone to Abraham, to Isaac, and now went to Jacob. That the promise that he would have descendants as the sand on the seashore that couldn't be counted... He says, you made that promise to me, so you can't let me down now. You have to keep your promise. He reminds God of his promise. And I think one of the reasons why it's so important for us to know the scriptures really well and to read the entire Bible is so that we can understand the promises of God. The scriptures are, 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 throughout the scriptures are scattered many wonderful promises of God. Now we have to figure out, is this a promise to everybody? Is it a promise to me? Is it a promise to Christians? Was it a promise to the Jews in a particular situation that they were in? And then the other thing we have to look at is, is the promise conditional? Because sometimes God says, if you do this, then I will do that. So we've got to, we've got to take the promises in context, but it's so important as we're studying the scriptures to collect the promises of God. And when we're praying to God and when we're facing our challenges, we can remind God of the promises that he made. So I want to share with you some of the promises that I think about from time to time that I remind myself or other people. One of the great promises of God to remind God of is in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 regarding when we're facing temptation. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful. That means he always keeps his promises. This is the nature of God. God is faithful. He is a promise-keeping God who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Brother, I was talking to this week, who's not not here, not local, but he, we were talking over the phone, who was, who was struggling with a temptation that he was facing in life. And I reminded him of this scripture. This is a promise of God. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will provide a way out. Now, you have to look for the way out. You have to have the attitude that you're going to do whatever it takes. If it means gouging your eye out or cutting your hand off, you, know, you have to have that kind of intensity. But God has promised you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. So this is a promise of God that we can remind God of and remind ourselves of. Uh, for those who struggle with, I just sinned, I have a hard time believing that God is going to be able to forgive me. There's the promise in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then the promise, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. Again, God is a faithful God. He always keeps his promises. There's a condition here. If we confess our sins, then he will. he's faithful and he's just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's a wonderful promise of God for those of us who struggle sometimes thinking, there, I did it again. I can't believe that God's going to be able to forgive me. Regarding not to worry, think of what Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, worrying about our basic needs in life. Jesus says, therefore, don't worry, saying, and what and should we eat? Sermon on the Mount, that's right. Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? Or what should we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The things, this is a promise of God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is a condition. I heard it as seek first his kingdom, but actually it says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Both. And you do that and God will... Uh, uh, these things shall be added to you. Now, he's talking about your basic needs in life, not, not uh, pleasures and extravagances. Uh, regarding prayer, in James 5.16, it says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, that's, that's a great promise that prayer is, prayer is powerful. Prayer has an impact. It's not just to make us feel good and to take away our anxieties. It's not, it's not the psychological impact of prayer. The prayer actually changes things. It has an impact just like the prayer of Elijah that stopped it from raining and, and caused, brought the rain back again. That that's what prayer does. But the, the challenging part, it says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's a promise of God. Uh, Psalm 1, I think about this all the time, very encouraging. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates in it, he meditates day and night. It says, he shall be a tree like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does shall prosper. It's a great promise of God in Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. I want to be like the tree planted by streams of water, meditating on the word day and night, so that when the time of drought comes, I'm doing just fine. So uh, that's it. The, 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 time of, the time of drought is going to come, but uh, the, the, the man who's planted by the streams of water, it says that he'll bring forth its fruit in season, and his leaf will not wither, no matter what happens. And then the, the, encouraging, the encouraging promise in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It says, Let your conduct be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. This is a wonderful promise of God that is applied to Christians. It says, don't lose heart. Now, the challenge here is don't be, don't, 
Don't be involved in covetousness. Don't be greedy and be, be going after other things. Be content because God will never leave us and will never forsake us. He will take care of us. That's in Hebrews 13, 5, which points back to Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1, 5. But it applies that promise to all of us. So there are many wonderful promises that are contained in the scriptures for us. And we have to study them and gather them. That's what gave Jacob great confidence in praying to God. And he reminded God of those promises. And that's a good thing for us to do as well. We can remind God, you promised this. And, uh, and I want to I call, call on you to deliver what you promised here. Because I know you're a faithful God. Let's continue. Gen- Genesis chapter 32. The rest of the chapter. Now this is a strange story. Genesis chapter 32 verses 22 to 32. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them and crossed over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. But Israel, for you have prevailed with God and with men. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why do you ask me about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of that place the form of God. For I saw God face to face, and my soul was saved. When the form of God passed by, the sun rose on him. But he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Uh, let's go over the elements of the story, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into it to see what we can learn from it. So Jacob sends his family and his possessions on ahead, and he remains alone. Then he wrestles with someone... All night long. The match ends in a draw with neither side able to defeat the other. His opponent touches the socket of Jacob's hip and causes some kind of a problem with his muscle or tendon. Uh, so, And after that, Jacob limps. And it says as a result of that, the Jews don't eat that muscle on the animals. And then at daybreak, Jacob will only let his opponent go if he gets a blessing from him. There's a sort of exchange of names here. Uh, Jacob gives his name to the other man, but he's now going to be given a new name, the name Israel, because it says, you have prevailed with God and with men. But then he asks the other man, can you please give me your name? And the man evades the question, refuses to do that, declines. So Jacob names the place of the all-night wrestling match 
in the Hebrew uh, text it says peniel, and in the Hebrew in the uh, the Septuagint it says form of God, which we just read from. He says, "For I saw God face to face, and my soul was saved." Whatever that means. I want to look at look at two things from this story. The first one is. Are there any moral lessons? And the second one is, who was, that, uh, who was that man or being that he was wrestling with? So, moral lessons or examples for us to follow in Jacob's wrestling all night long. Now, let's stop and think. How old is Jacob in this story? He's at least 60 years old. You think about it, his twin brother, who's obviously they have the same age, his twin brother is 40 years old before he leaves, so he's got to be, and he's gone for at least 20 years, so he's got to be, he's in his 60s at least. All right? So he's an older man, having had a very hard life. We already learned that in our, our last lesson, a lot of suffering, and he has a big family. Yet he's still obviously going pretty strong at this age. Now, wrestling is one of the most exhausting things that a person can do because you let up for one second and you're, you're, you're done. So you can't let up. You've got to keep going. You have an adversary and you're tangled up with each other. I mean, in, in a wrestling, I believe in college wrestling matches, they only go for a few minutes at a time and then they get a break to, to stop and, and rest. Mm. But here he's going not just for a few minutes or an hour or two. He's wrestling all night long. So this, this could be an eight-hour-long continuous wrestling match. And he absolutely refuses to give up. And this, to me, is an extraordinary lesson in perseverance in the face of an extreme trial. So what's the significance of this to us? Is there anything that we're supposed to get out of this? This this prolonged period of intense wrestling and refusing to give up. I can think of one scripture in the New Testament. Now, this is this, the, re, the reason I like the Septuagint is because the language is the same, same Greek in the Old Testament as we have in the New Testament, pretty much. There's one place I know of where the same word appears, and it's also translated wrestling. Now, uh, uh, uh I used to read the NIV, and that would be Colossians 4.12, but it's actually a different word. It says that Epaphras is always wrestling with you in prayer. I think almost all the other translations say that he's agonizing with you. The word is, probably doesn't mean, mean wrestling necessarily. But there's one place in the New Testament where it talks about Christians wrestling. And when you stop and think about that, where that might possibly be. There's one scripture I know where the same, the same root word is used here is in this story where it talks about the importance of Christians wrestling. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the day of evil. 
and having done all to stand. So Paul talks about the Christian life as being like a wrestling match. Only we're not wrestling against people. We're wrestling against spiritual forces of evil and our very souls are at stake. We are now the ones that are in the wrestling arena wrestling for our eternal salvation. He says our fight is our wrestling match is not against other people it's against the spiritual forces of evil which would be Satan the angels with him and any demonic forces that are out there that we are wrestling with them. Now I look at this as you're not just wrestling against one opponent. This is in effect the royal rumble here where you're wrestling against the entire array of evil. But this isn't a phony staged wrestling match that's for entertainment purposes with ladders and chairs. In this match, you're not the spectator. You are in the corner. You are in the arena. The trash talk is being directed at you. The opponents aren't wearing makeup to make them look evil. If anything, they're wearing makeup to make them look good. Beneath the surface, they really are evil. Your opponents are evil and powerful, and there are many of them. And they're working together to defeat you. And your opponents will fight dirty. They'll use illegal holds. They'll hit below the belt whenever they possibly can. And they'll strike you even harder when you're down on the mat. Our challenge as we are in the wrestling match for our eternal lives is to follow the example of heroes of faith like Jacob, the great wrestler, and Jesus. We have a great coach and trainer in our corner. We may be alone, but we have a great coach and trainer. And he has equipped us with all the weapons that we need to take on this evil wrestling army that's against us. We have to follow his instruction and use the weapons that he's given us if we're going to win. Paul reminds us that we need the the weapons that we have include the truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And the offensive weapon of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which we need to be able to wield expertly. And praying always in all occasions. And the challenge before us, like Jacob, was that we will be found still standing when the dust has settled, the day of evil has come and gone. And the contest is finished. The challenge for us is to persevere to the end of the wrestling match, no matter what it takes, just like Jacob did. To persevere until the end, not giving up. And I want to turn to one last question here. Who was that man that Jacob was wrestling with? Was it God, an angel, Another man? Something else? Well, what does it say in the text? 
His opponent refuses to give a name, but he, but he says to Jacob, you have prevailed with God and with men. And Jacob says, I saw God face to face. So clearly Jacob believes he was wrestling with God all night long. There's a problem with that. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to the Lord, there's just one thing I'd like. I want you to be with me, but could you please reveal yourself to me? I want to see you. And the Lord answers to Moses in Exodus 33. He tells Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul, speaking about the return of Jesus, he tells Timothy that God, referring to the Father, that God the Father will manifest in his own time he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Similar in John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is at the bosom of the Father has declared him. Some translation of that thing says revealed him. So how do we resolve this contradiction? Jacob says, I saw God face to face. God tells Moses, and Paul says, and John says, in no uncertain terms, it is impossible for any man to see the face of God and live. It just can't happen and has never happened. Is this a contradiction in the scriptures? It would seem to be in a, a contradiction on the face of it. The early Christian writers didn't see it that way. They didn't see it as a contradiction. And here's their explanation. I'll, I'll roll this out for you, and you can consider whether you agree with them or not. Clement of Alexandria, who lived around uh, 150 to 215 AD, he's a teacher in the church of Alexandria, Egypt. And he wrote, Our instructor is the Holy God, Jesus the Word, who is the guide for all humanity. The loving God himself is our instructor. And this is a work that's called The Instructor. And he most manifestly appears as Jacob's instructor. He says accordingly to him, Lo, I am with thee to, help th to keep thee in all the way in which you shall go. And I will bring you back into this land, for I will not leave you till I do what I told you. He is said, too, to have wrestled with him. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled with him a man, the instructor, till morning. This was the man who led and brought and wrestled with and anointed the athlete Jacob against evil. Now that the word was at once Jacob's trainer and the instructor of humanity, appears from this. He asked it and said his name and said to him, tell me what's your name? And he said, why do you ask my name? For he reserved the new name for the new people, the babe and was as yet unnamed, the living God not having yet become man. 
Yet Jacob called the name of the place Face of God, for he said, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. The face of God is the word by whom God is manifested and made known. Then he was also named Israel because he saw God the Lord. So Clement of Alexandria, he says, he saw the word of God. He saw the son of God. He didn't see the father. Several of the early Christian writers make the same point. Tertullian, who's from North Africa, uh, around 160 to 230 A.D. That's the Clement of Alexandria was in a work called The Instructor, which is Anicene Fathers, Volume 2, page 223. Tertullian said, When Moses in Egypt desired to see the face of the Lord, saying, If therefore I have found grace in your sight, manifest yourself to me that I may see and know you. God said, You can't see my face, for there is no man can see me and live. In other words, he who sees me shall die. Now we find that God has been seen by many persons, yet no one who saw him died at his sight. The truth is they saw God according to the faculties of men, but not in accordance with the full glory of the Godhead. For the patriarchs are said to have seen God, such as Abraham and Jacob. And the prophets, for example, Isaiah and Ezekiel, yet they didn't die. I mean, this is, he's stating the obvious here. This is what we're looking at. Either then they ought to have died since they had seen him. This is logical. Uh, For the sentence says, no man shall see God and live, or else if they saw God and yet didn't die, the scripture is false in stating and stating that God said, if any man sees my face, he will not die. Either way, the scripture misleads us when it makes God invisible and when it produces him in our sight. So he's throwing this, he's throwing the challenge out there and then he explains, he explains the challenge. And he says, it must be a different being who was seen because of one who was seen, it could not be predicated that he is invisible. It will therefore follow that by him who is invisible, we must understand the Father in the fullness of his majesty. While we recognize the Son as visible by reason of the dispensation of his derived existence. Then he goes on to explain, he says, even as it's not permitted to us to contemplate the Son, okay, you can't look at this directly at the sun in the sky, in the full amount of his substance, which is in the heavens, but we can endure with our eyes a ray by reason of the temperate condition of this portion, which is projected from the sun and the sky to the earth. So it says, you can't look at the sun in all of its radiance. You'd be blinded. But you can, you can look at a ray of sun that, that hits the earth, because, because it's, and, and the ray of sun is sun. It's one with the sun and the sky, but we can, our senses can perceive that. And he explains it's the the same way with the Father and the Son. He says, And by this means they'll have it that the visible and the invisible are one and the same, just as the Father and the Son are the same. And this they maintain, because in a preceding passage he he had before said he had refused the sight of his face to Moses. The scripture informs us that the Lord spoke face to face with Moses, even as a man speaks to his friend. That's also in Exodus 
Just as Jacob also says, I have seen God face to face. Therefore, the visible and the invisible are one and the same. Both being thus the same, it follows that he is invisible as father and visible as son. So, who did Jacob see? Who did Jacob wrestle with? The, the contradiction is explained by the early Christians. They're saying that the, the fact that the, the Word of God, the Son of God, who existed before all things and through whom the universe was created, was made manifest several times in history before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And this is, we can't look at the sun in the sky without being blinded. No one can see the eternal Father in all of his glory, but we can see the effect of the sun. We can see rays of sun. We can see the word of God who appeared many times in the Old Testament. So the idea of the Son of God being divine is not just proven in the New Testament, but we can also see it clearly in the Old Testament as we put all of these scriptures together. Uh, Many times when I want to teach the Old Testament in the past, People have said, you know, I really want to read the New Testament because I want to focus on Jesus. Well, I want to study the Old Testament because I want to focus on Jesus. So uh, I pray that uh, God will, will help us to open up our eyes and see Jesus all over the scriptures. Amen.